Well, happy Easter. My name is Doug. I'm one of the pastors here at Parkview, and it's my joy to be able to open up God's Word and to be able to proclaim the risen Christ to you this morning. Um, to do that, we're going to find ourselves in the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. Um, specifically, we'll be looking at chapter 28. So if you have a copy of God's Word, I would invite you to take it out, open it up, maybe open it up on your phone, whatever is most convenient for you will be on the screen. And um, if you're new around here, we are just so glad that you're here. We're so glad that you have uh, decided to celebrate um, Easter with us this morning. And um, what good news. I mean, just again, as you, as you consider this year, and I just know for a fact that there are, there are many in this room right now who are struggling. I, I, I have no idea what you walked in this room bearing this morning, what maybe you are suffering with, loss, grief, pain, sickness. I have no idea. But what I do know is this, that the risen Jesus Christ, the, the fact that the tomb is empty this morning, gives us reason, even in the midst of great pain and suffering, to celebrate and to have joy, a joy that, that cannot be taken from us. And that, that's, that's worthy of celebration. And so this morning, as we draw our attention to God's word, my, my hope and my prayer is simple, that our hearts would be stirred in worship, this risen Christ that we serve. Okay, so Matthew 28, I'm going to read the entirety of the chapter. I'll pray for our time, and then we'll spend some, a few minutes looking at God's word, okay? This is Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly, tell his disciples that, that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See? I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. They came up and took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell the people his disciples came by night and stole them away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Church, let's pray. Father God, Lord, we are just so overjoyed to be able to be together this morning and to worship our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
God, I ask that you would make your presence known in this room. We recognize that you are here in our midst. Lord, and I just pray that um, as we consider the reality of the resurrection, that our hearts would be stirred again in wonder and in worship of who you are and what you have done, the great demonstration of love that you have poured out for us, Lord, and your son. Lord, I pray it would become a reality to all of us and a great source of hope for everyone this morning. Lord, we ask that you would take these words, which we believe to be eternal and to be true. Might you write them on our hearts and shape us into the people that you have called us to be. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, in January of 2007, Steve Jobs stood before a packed house at his famous Mac World keynote. And he started the presentation by declaring, every once in a while, a revolutionary product comes about that changes everything. Jobs went on to say that today he was actually introducing three such revolutionary products. The first product would be a widescreen iPod with touch controls. Pretty awesome, right? The second one would be a revolutionary mobile phone. And the third product, he said, would be a breakthrough internet communication device. Well, it was only after a minute or so of Jobs' presentation, of having maybe a little fun at the audience's expense, that it began to find out that it was not indeed three products, but actually one revolutionary product, the iPhone. And this iPhone, as we know it, would would definitely spark a revolution where technology and mobile devices were concerned. So much so that between 2007 and 2018, some 2.2 billion iPhones were sold. In fact, in 2018, um, Apple stopped releasing stats, so we don't know how many have been sold since then. But 2.2 billion. In fact, I would be willing to wager that the thing that is most likely to distract you this morning is likely not the possibility of an Easter egg hunt waiting after church. It's likely not thoughts of a well-glazed ham waiting for you at home, or maybe, this is Iowa, some form of casserole, okay? Like, those thoughts are likely not the things that are going to serve for you as the greatest distraction. I would be willing to wager that the greatest distraction over the next 30 minutes for you this morning, 2021, is likely the iPhone or a phone that has been made because of the revolution the iPhone started. This thing is a revolutionary device. Now, I would also be willing to wager that Jobs nor Apple had any idea of precisely how revolutionary this product would become. Well, in Jesus' day, in first century Israel, the landscape would have been littered with dozens of messianic movements that all shared similar revolutionary aspirations. However, nearly every of these would-be revolutionaries were met with a similar fate that met Jesus. The cross, crucifixion, execution, murder of the leader. And as a result, once the leader was executed, the revolution was squashed, right? The followers would go home. Well, not so with this revolution. Not so with this revolutionary In fact, quite the opposite happened with this movement. As Jesus was crucified, the complete opposite, not only did Christianity not collapse and fall apart, but actually it exploded. 
It exploded and it eventually turned the world on its head. Not just the Roman world, not just the ancient Near East, but the entire world. So much so that some 2,000 years later, we are decked out in our finest here celebrating that revolutionary leader. The events of the crucifixion and the resurrection would set in motion a revolution that would turn the world on its head. It would spread throughout the world. And what we will see this morning is that the resurrection does not just have a tremendous historical significance. It does that for sure. It has amazing historical significance. But it also has deeply personal significance. We'll see that this morning. Really, the, the big idea, what I want us to consider as we look at Matthew 28 together, is I want us to see that the discovery of the risen Christ demands a response. That the reality of the empty tomb demands a response for everyone who stumbles upon that discovery. And so we'll look at three things. The first thing we'll just consider together in verses 1 through 10 is the resurrection discovered. We're told that as daylight dawns on the third day, this is Sunday, it would have been Jewish custom to count a portion of each day as a whole day, so that, that's why we get to the third day on Sunday. The women arrive at the tomb, we're told in Mark and in Luke, that they brought spices and they had an anticipation to, to tend to the body of Jesus, to, to anoint the body, to, to care for the crucified Savior, leader. They expected to find, this tells us, a body. They were not expecting what they saw. They were not expecting to, to stumble across a discovery that would change the course of the world. Instead, they, as they arrive, they find this, have this interaction with the angel, the earthquake, and, and we see that the, roll, the stone is rolled back and that there's, there's no body. The, the other gospels tell us that they saw these grave clothes lying there, that even one says that the face cloth was neatly folded. A remarkable, unexpected discovery. Jesus was God. And these women were the first to stumble across it. Now it's important, just as a side note, to notice who makes the discovery. This is no small thing. It's incredibly significant that, that women, once again, are closest to Jesus at his most crucial point in this passion story. The disciples themselves who promised their loyalty, who promised to be followers and faithful followers of Jesus at that, are actually scattered. They, they left. They abandoned. But it's, it's women that stay close to Jesus, who want, who want to be there to care for the body. We're told in verse 2, there's an earthquake. The chronological sequence is unclear. It happens just before the women arrive or possibly as they view the tomb. Not clear if they witness the angel rolling away the stone or, or how it might relate to the earthquake. But one thing is clear and it's important to keep in mind. That the stone was not rolled away to let Jesus out. Rather, the stone was moved to let the women in. The stone was moved to let the women in. The angel's message is, is really quite interesting when you think about it. The most significant event in all of human history. And we have little idea of exactly how the resurrection happened. But his emphasis in proclaiming the resurrection is not explaining it, but simply that. Proclaiming it. Declaring it. What happens and what it means to them as a result. His message is simple. In the original language, it's just one word. He is risen. 
Yet this simple message is the center and the source of all Christian hope. The hope for humanity. Christ has risen. Death has been defeated. The grave itself has been conquered. See, the resurrection, folks, is not simply a component of the Christian message. It's not merely a feature of our story. It is, be sure of it, the main event. It is, in fact, the greatest event, not just in the life of our Lord Jesus, but in all of human history. It is the evidence, the resurrection itself, that, that Jesus was precisely who he who he declared himself to be. And it was evidence that what he accomplished on the cross was legit. The resurrection, this culminating event in the divine redemption and the cornerstone of the gospel message is the cornerstone of our Christian faith and our eternal hope. And listen, here's the deal. If the, if the resurrection did not happen, we might as well close up shop right now. Right? I know we're all looking cute this morning, but it ain't for nothing if the resurrection didn't happen. If the resurrection did not happen, the Bible simply becomes just a really interesting story. Jesus himself becomes a leader who was maybe charismatic and had some really wonderful things to say. But really, he just becomes a moral leader. But if the resurrection happened, then it changes everything. It changes absolutely everything. Again, the tomb was not rolled away to let Jesus out, but to let those ladies in that first Easter morning to discover the resurrection. And as you consider simply the claim of the resurrection, the reality is there's only sort of two possible ways to respond. There's only two, as you peer in this morning, as we roll that tomb back and we we peer in at the claim of an empty tomb and a resurrected Jesus, there's only two ways that you can really ultimately respond. Now, one of my favorite places to go as a family is we love to go to like Yellowstone area, Montana, just beautiful, beautiful parts of our country, okay? I mean, Iowa's beautiful too, I guess. No, no hating on Iowa. Sorry. See some head shaking? Okay. Just, you can decide that on the way home. But I can remember as a boy watching, growing up watching the movie, um, A River Runs Through It, and just being captivated by just the beautiful scenery, right, of Montana. Just these, these guys out there fishing and this beautiful water and just beautiful landscape. And so every now and then we'll go out there and it's just, it's just breathtaking views. I don't know if you've been, but gorgeous, right? So much that as you're driving down, you'll just take a turn and it'll just be like, oh my goodness, the view is just, it's, it's almost too much to take in, the glory of God's creation, right? But one thing that always strikes me is as we drive, and we're just like, I mean, going slow, looking, and just taking in everything, stopping every five seconds, trying to catch a fish, having no luck, you know. But as we are just taking in God's creation, there's, there's people who, I know this is, there's people who actually live in Montana. I don't know if you knew that. But they live there every day. And like, this is home for them. And, and as we are like just blown away by what we see, they just kind of casually go about their business. You know, it's just a normal Tuesday for them, right? Here's the deal. The resurrection for us can never be like that. It can never be like a, Mon- I don't know how to say a Montanian, I don't know, somebody who lives in Montana, whatever you would describe that person as or call them, can never be, it can never grow stale to us. It never should. We should be constantly captivated by the reality of the resurrection. There are no casual observers to the empty tune. There's two responses. The first response is this, and we see it in verses 11 through 15. 
So the women leave and tell the disciples. The this, this story shifts now back in verse 11 to the guard. The, the men, likely Roman soldiers, who, who must also give a report of a very different reaction than the women. The women, if you remember, are filled with joy and excitement. They're, they're trembling at what they've seen and heard. They're just blown away. Not so with the guard. They are likely confused and terrified. This will likely mean for them not just their job, but likely also their life. So they go back with this report. The, the report leads the priest to develop a story and attempt to sort of explain away the resurrection. They've seen the same thing. The tomb is empty. Both groups of people have peered into this. The, the, the stone has been rolled away and they've peered in. They've seen the exact same evidence. But they have totally different responses. The reality of the resurrection for the guard and the priest, they're dealing with the same thing. The tomb is empty. Their response is that of opposition, of rejection. What they attempt to do is to explain the resurrection away in human categories, right? Which is understandable. This is a supernatural event. Nothing like it has ever happened. Nothing like it will ever happen again. This is an extraordinary event. Be sure of it. And they approach it by trying to make it fit neatly into human categories. And the reality is this is no different than what we do today. As we consider the claim of the resurrection as laid out in the Bible, we either can believe it or try to explain it away. This is, this is nothing new. This happens some 2,000 years later, continually. And, and there's multiple ways that people try to explain it away. One is what we see right here in the text. Come up with an explanation, they simply stole the body. Develop a, a hoax, a conspiracy to just explain it away. They stole the body. Now, just think about it for a second. What would this require? This would require these disciples, these men who, remember, they've scattered all over the place. It would require these men, these unskilled men to maneuver their way into the tomb and out of the tomb with Jesus's body, past these qualified, skilled Roman guards. And if anything, as you've read the story, one of the things that you see over and over that comes to the surface is the incompetency of these men, not their ability to outwit a Roman guard, okay? So, so this hoax this, this idea that there was a hoax that was developed and the body was stolen, it's really hard to believe. Second one that's picked up a lot of speed over the years or um, picked up, up some momentum over the years is that they went to the wrong tomb. So the suggestion is simply that the women went to the wrong tomb. This also is a really hard one to believe because what it requires is that they went to the wrong tomb, that they then told others who came now and also went to the wrong tomb. And it doesn't just require that the disciples and the followers of Jesus went to the wrong tomb. It would also mean, according to the account, that the Roman guards were stationed at the wrong tomb. And if this is what happened, well, simply all the Roman Empire would need to do as this movement and revolution began to spread is simply present the real body. This is the right tomb. And then it would be over, shut down, no revolution. A third one that's explanation that, again, fits into this one, maybe not so much into human categories, but it's an attempt to explain it away, is that, the, that these people, the disciples of Jesus, just hallucinated. That in their pain and in their grief, as they, as they, they, they grieved over the loss of their leader, that they, they just experienced a hallucination, that eventually they began to develop a story 
and, and promote that story. But what would be interesting about that and what, why that doesn't really fit so nicely is because it would require not just two women to have the same hallucination, but the rest of the disciples to have the same hallucination. And then the Bible tells us that Jesus' body himself appeared to some 500 witnesses who would have also, you guessed it, had to have the same hallucination. And then, not to say, what you could do as, the, as you read throughout the story is you could simply go to those those witnesses, and you could ask them the question because as these things are being written, these, these witnesses are still alive, okay? And a fourth one possible explanation is that they simply mistook Jesus for being dead. And this is one that has a lot of people who believe this one specifically. Many just believe that they claim that Jesus went to the cross, but instead of dying, he was brutally scourged. He, he had a thorn of crowns placed on his head. He had, he had, he, he, and, and all these things happened, but he didn't actually die, right? But the Roman guard brought him down and, and put him away, but he was still alive. But this requires us, I mean, think about just what Jesus went through. Six trials, no sleep, brutally scourged, crown of thorns, nails in his hands and his feet. Bear, you know, stuck in a tomb. And then from out, inside the tomb, Jesus is able to roll. This, this same Jesus who went through all of that is now able to roll away the tomb stone and come out past these guards. That same Jesus, again, highly, highly unlikely. As you consider the implausibility of these explanations, which have been really the main ones that have gained traction over the years, you must consider the alternative that Jesus actually rose from the dead, that, that he, the tomb is empty because of the resurrection. Now, here's the deal. Again, this doesn't fit neatly in human categories. It didn't fit neatly in their categories. The, the, your typical first century Jew would not have any sort of category for resurrection. It was not an, uh, an anticipation, an expectation. They didn't even know what it was really, okay? Tim Keller says this, it's really helpful. If you're here this morning and maybe struggling to just believe in the reality of the resurrection, which I think is, is likely many in this room and, you know, a lot of people still have a hard time figuring it out and understanding it. Tim Keller, a popular pastor in New York City and former pastor and, and author, um, is famous for saying this on Easter morning. He always says this to his congregation. Even if you can't believe in the resurrection, you should at least want it to be true. Let me say that one more time. Even if you cannot believe, even if you are struggling in unbelie with unbelief, if you can't believe the resurrection, you should at least want it to be true. Why would he say that? Why would he say that? Well, I think it's because he's making an assumption. His assumption is that his audience, his people in his church, care about things like justice for the poor, alleviating things like hunger and disease, that they value, he's assuming they value for caring for the most vulnerable in our society. And I think maybe the safest assumption at all is he's assuming that his listeners want things like meaning and purpose in their life. And so he says, even if you have a hard time believing it, you should at least want it to be true because when you do, like we just got done singing about, you, it makes way for us as a people who struggle through this world every day to have a living hope, 
a living hope. He says, I mean, really the resurrection makes sense of our physical world and says, listen, not just this world that we have right here is not the only world that exists. There is eternity. There is an eternal life that is awaits you. The same resurrection that Jesus experienced is available for you. It gives us hope in a world that is to come, but it also makes sense of our world as we know it today. It brings hope and meaning and purpose to our life right here and right now. And as a, rea- as a result, we should want it to be true. I mean, those two things, hope in the next life, hope and meaning and purpose in this life, that's what the resurrection offers us this morning. And if you are searching for something, the, the challenge to you is the same challenge that the angel offered to the women on that first day. Come and see. Come and see. If you are struggling with unbelief, on the way out here this morning, we have the Connect counter that's filled with Bibles. And my encouragement to you is pick up one of those. It's a gift from us to you. And read this story. Let God's word speak for itself. Finally, that's one way to respond, the response of unbelief. Quickly, we'll look at the last way to respond. We see this in 16 and 20, likely the most famous portion of this passage, one that we've preached on many times here, but um, what does the life of belief look like? As we consider verses 16 to 20, we get, we get a, a picture of what it looks like to believe in the resurrection. Just three words real quick. The first one is that the disciples, as he appears to the disciples in Galilee, as they meet with him, the first response for them is worship. They recognize who he is, and they give him their worship. Now, this is no small thing for these first century Jewish men to bow down and worship, they would know that you don't worship anybody but God. So they recognize Jesus at that moment for who he really is, the living God. And they give him what only he deserves, worship. The life of a believer is one that is marked by worshiping Jesus. Secondly, what do we see? We see also not just worship, we also see weakness. Again, look at the text. The next three words, after the fact that they saw him, they worshiped, the next three words says, but some doubted. Now, this is not what you would expect. Here, the culmination of this book, Matthew tells us, some of these disciples were hesitant to believe. Some of these disciples were were hesitant to worship, that they were struggling with doubt. Why in the world would he include those words in this In this telling of the story, some of these men doubted. Well, two reasons. One is because it's true. Two is because it shows a weakness within the disciples. These men, been with the risen Savior, standing now in front of them, they are struggling in their quest to believe. I don't know about you, but for me, that is really good news. It's really good news. The word here used to doubt is the same word that described Peter's faith in Matthew 14 when Jesus appears, maybe you're familiar with the story, to the disciples walking on the water. And as Peter walks out towards, uh, towards Jesus, he begins to think, his mind is off of the Savior, and he begins to think of the wind and, and the troubles and all that could be underneath him, and he begins to be afraid of sinking. And as he takes his sight off of Jesus, Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? This is exactly what some of these disciples are experiencing as they see Jesus for the very first time. 
After the resurrection, doubt, hesitation, little faith. The final picture Matthew gives us of Jesus' closest followers as they are drawing near to him is that they are in very different places in their faith, in their belief. They are approaching Jesus in worship, but they are not all in the same place where, they, where their belief is concerned. And it's a wonderful reminder for us as we worship and give ourselves to worshiping this risen Lord Jesus that we must do it together so that we can be a source of encouragement to strengthen our faith and belief in Jesus and our commitment to him. Folks, there is nothing greater than worshiping Jesus. And he has designed it for us to do that, to walk that path together as a people. We would love, if you are new here, again, we would love for you to be connected with us as we live out this belief, as we live out this faith together as a people, as a source of encouragement. Finally, the last thing is a look at belief we've seen. Worship, weakness, we're not all finished products, right? And lastly, witness. This is the setting in which Jesus entrusts the Great Commission to his team. Doesn't on the surface sound very promising, yet these weak, unbelieving men are exactly who the Lord chooses to be his people. With no money, with no building, he sent them into the world to be his witnesses, his church. And we find out in Acts 17, 6 that the early church was so committed to this mission, the go and make disciples of all nations mission, that, that the people in Thessalonica, when they came there, said, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Between Matthew 28 and Acts 7.10, these disciples were so committed to witnessing to the, about the risen Lord Jesus making disciples that the entire Roman world has turned on its head. You can only imagine the distractions that they would have faced as they pursued the mission that Jesus invited them in. The persecution, the suffering, all the reasons to abandon and go home. Yet these men were so convinced that Jesus was risen from the dead, that they pushed through all of that. It would mean death for, for them. And as a result, their world was transformed. Our world was transformed through their obedience to God's commands. Folks, the same promise is available for us this morning. The same reality and possibility exists for us that as we lean into this revolution, God, because he gives us his presence, Jesus says, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's not us and our might and strength that is turning our world on its head, but it's Jesus working through our weakness in our faith as we give ourselves to this revolution that, that our entire community, not just our community can be revolutionized and turned on its head, but the entire world because we have a living Savior. And he's given us a living hope. And now our job is to distribute that to those around us, to point others to him. You know, it's interesting. At the beginning of jo Steve Jobs' first presentation, he um, shared a picture, just kind of a joking picture of what the iPhone would look like. And the picture is helpful because it helps us understand what he thought the iPhone would do. I don't know, there's a, there's a picture of it. A funny picture, right? That's a dial. Phones used to look like that, okay? So you have the iPod on the top and just Steve Jobs thought the iPhone would revolutionize the world because we would be able to call and listen to music from the same device. Now here's the deal. Steve Jobs had no idea 
what he was opening up. I mean, of the 85 times that you've checked your phone this morning, I'd be willing to, to wager two of those probably didn't even happen. You were probably sending cute Instagram pictures and, and sharing pictures with, you know, he had no idea how this would be used where social media was concerned and how we would use our phone this day. Had zero idea of really the power that he was unleashing on the world. Here's the deal. I think us as Christians, likewise, have zero idea of the power that exists in us and with us because of the resurrection. Sam Albury says that Christians, uh, current author, says that Christians have a habit of sort of taking the resurrection out maybe once a year, maybe even once a week, sort of dusting it off, celebrating it, and then putting it back in its drawer. Folks, if we want to be a church, a people that turns this world on its head, we have to be a people who are committed to practicing this resurrection, to recognizing that it actually happened. And because it happened, it changes everything. Our relationships, the way we approach our work, the way we raise our kids, the way we go to school, the way we love our neighbor, it changes everything. And the invitation for us this morning is to lean into that revolution and to, to practice that resurrection living. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much just for the reality that this morning we serve a living God and he has given us living hope. And so we recognize this morning that there are fears, that there are difficulties, pains and sufferings present in this room. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a people who bring all of our insecurities, all of our fears, all of our worries to Jesus. And we thank you that, that Jesus is alive, that he welcomes us in his presence, and that he has the ability to transform our lives and to use us to be transforming agents, Lord. And I just pray, I pray that your will would be done in this church and in our lives where that's concerned. We love you, and we ask these things in your name. Amen.